I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Well, what a difference one week makes. This time last week, I was stomping through thick snow out here in the East Anglian countryside, where I take my walks and record my intros for the podcast. And of course, usually I'm accompanied by my best dog friend, Rosie, a Whippet Poodle Cross. Last week, she was not with me because she wasn't well. She had a mysterious reaction to... Well, we don't know what was wrong with her, but she wasn't eating. And she spent the following week refusing to eat, going in and out of the vet. They were unable to find anything obviously wrong with her, but she just didn't want to eat. It was very distraughtening. Eventually, we just had to take her back in to the vet and they put her on a drip while they continued testing to see what was up and they just weren't able to find anything definitive at all. So it remains a bit of a mystery but I'm glad to say that she is now eating and they had to put a tube down her. Oh dear, I mean poor dog. The tube was to feed her food, right? To get something into her stomach, to get some nutrition in there. And that seemed to successfully kickstart the impulse for her to want to eat. But she came back from the vet with all these patches of fur missing from where they had to shave her and attach drips and test things. Poor dog, she looks as if she's been scrapping with some very violent rabbits and she's all a bit discombobulated still and though she is eating her tummy is sensitive listen I'm giving you too much info here but uh, I know that a lot of you would want to know she is okay and I'm glad to say that she does seem to be and she's up ahead as I speak didn't know if she was going to come actually she seemed zonked this afternoon but there she is with my daughter on a really beautiful balmy afternoon One of those kinds of February days that seems to suggest that spring is on its way. Now, I'm not going to be that easily fooled. (laughs) No, sir. I've had that before. And you think, springtime, I'm going to get my shorts out. And then a week later, it's absolutely freezing again. But still, I'm not complaining. Now, let me tell you about my guest for podcast number 149. My daughter is standing with her hands on her hips, looking at me like, this is not a good father-daughter walk. (laughs) You're just talking into a recorder for your stupid podcast. Is that what you're thinking? (laughs) Not not yet. Not yet. All right. Ten minutes I've got. So, podcast number 149, which features Irish singer-songwriter, producer and director Roisin Murphy. 
Roisin Facts. Roisin, currently aged 47, grew up on the east coast of Ireland, then moved to England with her family in the mid-1980s. After a few years living and studying in Manchester, Roisin moved down the road to Sheffield, where she met musician Mark Bryden, with whom she started a romantic relationship and a band, Maloko. Originally considered to be part of the trip-hop music scene in the second half of the 90s, the band found wider commercial appeal in 1999, when a house remix of Maloko's track Sing It Back by German producer Boris de Lugosch propelled the band to number four in the UK charts. A year later, in 2000, they enjoyed the biggest hit of their career with the song The Time Is Now. Roisin and Mark parted ways after the release of their 2003 album Statues, and two years later, in 2005, Roisin released her debut solo album, Baby Blue, made with experimental British producer Matthew Herbert. A further four Roisin Murphy albums and a number of EPs made with a variety of producers have followed since then, and her latest, Roisin Machine, released last year, 2020, winningly showcased her gift for combining electronic experimentalism with an appreciation for a floor-filling dance anthem aesthetic. And it topped a number of snobby music critic end-of-year polls, which is the main thing. With the COVID pandemic making it impossible to promote Roisin Machine with the usual live concerts, Roisin, who has directed her own excellent music videos since 2015, threw herself into delivering brilliantly visual virtual performances of hits and new tracks at a number of online events last year. You will find links to some of those in the description. My conversation with Roisin was recorded remotely towards the beginning of this month, February 2021, with me in Norfolk and Roisin in Ibiza, or Ibiza, to use the proper pronunciation, where she and her two children, along with her Italian music producer romantic partner, got stuck when lockdown three kicked in. As well as talking with Roisin about hotel room destruction, growing up in Ireland, uh, my bad Irish accent, and how to avoid giving offence by mispronouncing Irish names... You will hear at the end of our conversation the results of a remote musical collab between myself and Roisin. She had indicated before we spoke that she would be up for providing some mainly spoken vocals for one of my jingles. So, taking advantage of the offer, I found a nice bit of library music and we got collabing. Back at the end for a tiny bit more waffle, but right now with Roisin Murphy. Here we go. How are you doing, Roisin? I'm good, yeah. I've been kind of trapped in Ibiza since Christmas, and it's been nice. Worst places to be trapped? Yes. 
What is the worst place you've ever been trapped? I was trapped when... Do you remember when they had the volcano cloud dust all over Europe? Yeah, man. 2011? Yeah, it was It was the first gig I did after I had my first child. And it was a, a DJ mm-hmm. gig uh, for some fashion people in Milan. And I couldn't get out. And... Um, I begged to get onto the Chemical Brothers private jet, but they weren't interested in taking me. Then I found some people, random people, and ended up going to Rome for a few days. And I was having a great time in Rome, but my father kept bringing me. He was, he was watching Sky News, you know, and he'd ring me and he'd say, I don't think this thing's ever going to finish. This It's really going to be bad. So in the end, I had to kind of try and get out by train. I went up to the train station couldn't get a ticket because there were thousands of people waiting. It was like a war zone, people trying to get out of sort of Nazi Poland or whatever. <laughs> Not quite as bad, I would Well, imagine. no, but it wasn't good and um, yeah. couldn't get out. And then I saw this sort of Dutch man kind of looking a bit hyperactive and going around and he came up to me and he went, um, we've just found a minibus that's willing to drive us to this town in Holland. So I got on the minibus, it took about 20 nine hours to get to this place which was like this modernist hellhole of a town that I didn't even know the name of it was like something out of a J.G. Ballard didn't know where I was but my brother meanwhile had driven from Ireland to Holland because he knew some lads in Holland as well he would swing by to see the lads on the way so we stayed with his friends on the side of a road somewhere in Holland and we did a night there and then we drove through France together and then we went on a ferry which took 20 hours to the south of Ireland. And then we drove up and just as I got home, they started doing the flights again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but did you have fun? I mean, are you someone that enjoys that kind of adventurous travel? Obviously, that's not ideal adventurous travel, but still, it's the kind of thing that some people have been able to write books about. I do, as long as one of your parents aren't ringing you going, your child, you left your child and it may never lift and all this. <laughs> so I could have had a great time. In fact, I was having a great time. I mean, I could have kicked myself. No, I mean, I'm well able for it. Maybe I have a bit of um, kind of gypsy blood. Yeah. I'm really good at, like, immediately I get onto a plane and immediately I fall asleep. It's like a plane puts me asleep. Oh, wow, that's great. Like a baby in the back of a car. That's right, yeah. I can't stay awake in a plane. So it's, I've done touring that's been, on paper, not possible. Especially weekends at, you know, the festivals when you've got a gig in Lisbon one night and Istanbul the next and then... Moscow the next night, you know, and you're sort of, you're not on a tour bus, there's no pace to it, it's all madness, like people just like rushing endless boxes of gear through airports at 6am and the drama of it all and, you know, sleep sometimes has not been figured into the equation. Yeah. Once that happened and um, there was a terrible nightmarish schedule for the weekend and our way of dealing with it is just to drink more. And the things weren't going right. We had the wrong crew around us. You know, me and Eddie, Eddie Stevens, who's the keyboard player, my musical director, a great character, has been with me since I was a kid, you know, um, doing this thing. And he is brilliant at what he does. Bit of a union man and all, but he's absolutely brilliant. And um, started drinking when we left London and didn't really stop. Didn't have time to stop, you know. There was no time. When you're asleep, you don't drink on tour so anyway everything went a bit peep tong and I woke 
I didn't wake up because I'd sort of tried to sleep and I'd had an hour and a half skip in a hotel and got up and found the whole place in disarray. It was about 5am in the morning, we were leaving. And Eddie had destroyed a hotel room in a classic rock Eddie. and roll fashion. Somebody came up to me and went, look, Eddie's broke up the hotel room. I said, he did not fucking break up the hotel room. They said, he did, he did. I said, I need to go up and have a look at it. So I went up, went into the room. He'd pulled the television off the wall, right, smashed that. Eddie. He broke the table. He Eddie. pulled down the curtains off the wall. He broke the glass table. He took the glass and he shredded um, the sofa with the glass. Eddie. And so, you know, we had these evil people. Like, we had a tour manager who could be in a panto as a baddie. I mean, she really was. <laughs> she was out to get every musician, every lazy, immoral, arrogant musician she could get. Well, at least I think so. But it was actually comic. It was so bad. And, yeah, he broke it up, broke up the place, pulled the cupboards off the walls in the, in the bathroom. It was the shredding. It was the using of the broken glass to shred things. Sure. I mean, obviously there is a tradition of that kind of behaviour that was phased out, really, after the 70s. It wasn't because for it the was... same reasons. It wasn't for 70s reasons, right. somehow. It was for millennial reasons. It was for... It was what is happening to my music world? Who are these people? What are they putting us through? It was, it was pure alienation on his part. And I came downstairs and I paid for it and we got into the bus. I never spoke to him again. How much does that cost? It was. I never spoke to him again. No, I, I, I never spoke about it again. And um, yeah, it was about, I think it was about three grand. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Eddie, I mean, were you not worried about him, though? I mean, I'm the kind of person... I wasn't worried about him because I know Eddie, you know, and I, I knew it was like it was time to face it and change the situation because, like... I think Eddie would have to go. It's not going to be Eddie. It's going to be you, love, and you, dear, who went to, you know, college to learn how to be a tour manager. Right. This is what I mean by a sort of millennial problem, really. It was a, it's a clash of, of culture, really, that didn't work out. Okay, but, you know, all right. Wow, that is a big clash of culture. But Eddie is your... Did, did you say he was your tech guy? No, he's my been the musical director for the live thing, so... Musical director? Yeah, he's everything right. hinges on what he achieves with that, and, and, and really he lifted it to another level when he came involved with us loads of years ago. Okay, so he is definitely an important piece of the puzzle. I understand that. But... Um, What's wrong with a terse email? I <laughs> know, but I think there had been plenty of terse emails. And also his emails can be quite sort of psychedelic in a way and uh, difficult for... OK. You know, he does, a lot, of, he does a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> psychedelic <laughs> spreadsheets. Whoa, that is expressing the hell out of yourself, isn't it? I don't think I could do that. I just bottle it all up. He's not that kind of big rock and roll. I mean, he's a booze man, as he says himself, a booze man. But he's a, you know, he's a, yeah. he's a nice, sensible boy from um, from London. Oh man! And so, did you? I've had a bit of a hectic day today. I wasn't going to say because it's a bit unprofessional to offload my domestic gripes onto you. Go on. But I um, had a bad phone call earlier in the day, and I sort of screwed up a situation, a professional situation. I was talking about becoming involved with a creative project 
And then I had some doubts and I had to pull out. And when I told the people I was pulling out, the phone call just went badly. And I totally lost control of my breathing. Oh, dear. So, yeah, I was really struggling. I had to take long pauses in between every word I said because I was really in trouble regulating my breathing. You know what I mean? Have you ever had that? No. No, I don't get them type of things. I'm very decisive, though. Are you Are you an indecisive person? That can be rather difficult for people. Yeah, I'm indecisive. You want all of the worlds. No, I don't want all of them. I, I, maybe I did at one point, but now I just want a very small corner of it. And actually, that's what I've got, in a way. And I had got out of the groove of collaborating and being involved in other types of projects, because I'm so used to just generating things myself and marching to the beat of my own drum. So evidently, I think maybe I didn't do a good job of negotiating this professional situation I was in. But I got the sense that he felt I had been a dick and it didn't feel good. You don't like to be a dick, do you? No, I don't. I do my best to avoid rubbing people up the wrong way. But sometimes (laughs) it's just not possible, is it? Are you someone that, how do you deal with uh, falling out with people and, and making enemies and things like that? Well, I don't know about making enemies. Have I made any enemies? Have you heard of some enemies of mine? No, I haven't. No, no, you don't have a reputation. You know, I try to be straight up, you know, like my nana was when she ran a business. I just sort of, um, you know, where you stand with me. And I think decisiveness is becoming a bit of a lost art form. People are choosing not to answer the texts, are choosing not to answer the question are choosing not to be clear and it gets on my nerves sort of like kind of selfish kind of like no I want all the time to make up my mind whether I'm you know even going to meet you for dinner next week Mm -hmm. and I am a believer that you tell people up straight what 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 you feel but you know can't decide straight away can you about some things you have to think it over within reason right You do have to sugarcoat things somewhat. Sometimes the unvarnished truth does no one any favours, really. You can be diplomatic when you're breaking bad news to someone or disagreeing with someone, or are you blunt to the point of offensiveness? Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. If I'm going to be fair, I can be, and I can be a bit scary, I suppose. Oh. Of course, you're going a bit deep here, aren't we? I am a softy-bofty. In the end, I'm a squirrel lion. I mean, I'm sort of part squirrel, part lion. This is what the children tell me anyway. Yeah. And what are you if you were two animals mixed, merged? Um, I'm like a sort of pig rat. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not. You're much more of a... Uh, I'm a a rabbit weasel. A beagle ferret. (laughs) (laughs) Beagle ferret. I mean, I look a little bit like a badger at the moment. You are badgerish, um, but they're mean. Yeah. Those badgers, mean. They are, aren't they? They you don't want to cross a badger, really. Imagine being mauled by a badger in the dead of night. It would be awful. A big old badger. Depending, really some people might you. like it. Bit of badgering. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of badgering. No. No, thank you. No. 
Now, Roisin, I had an idea. I was sort of reading through your bio a little bit and, and finding out bits and pieces about your life. And I started reading it out to myself in an Eamon Andrews voice. Because it da, seemed like... Da, da, da. <laughs> That's the theme tune from This Is Your Life for our younger listeners. Did you used to watch This Is Your Life? Yeah, yeah. My nana used to watch it. It was a TV show in which Eamon Andrews, who was an Irish entertainer... Presenter. Yeah, but he was also, like, before he became the presenter of This Is Your Life, he had a singing career, I think. Oh, he? had he? I think he did other entertaining stuff. And then he became the host of This Is Your Life, probably because of all the entertaining stuff he did. But Eamon Andrews was the host of This Is Your Life, and he would surprise people, celebrities and sports people and people with an interesting life. And he'd turn up with his big red book and he'd say, This Is Your Life, and they'd be backstage just about to go on and do a play or something or they would think they were doing something else and then suddenly Eamon Andrews would show up with the big book, which was like an album of all the great things they'd done in their lives and all the friends they'd met and the famous people they'd hung out with. And all those people would be there in the studio or they'd take them to the studio where all these people were and then they'd run through their lives. A reunion, yeah. So I was going to do something like that with you and we could gallop through in a very superficial way your life. What do you think about that? Bring it on. I'm going to start out trying to do an Eamon Andrews impression. Oh, God. Roisin, because he was quite, a, <laughs> there was quite an American twang to him. Roisin Marie Murphy, you were born in Arklow, County Wicklow, Ireland in 1973. <laughs> and then you jump in. I was indeed. Eamon, you know yourself. Arklow, of course, famous from the Van Morrison song, the, the Streets, Streets of, of Arklow. Do you like that song? I do. I do. I love that album. Mad for it. Absolutely oh, mad for it. It's great, isn't it? Feed and Fleece. Feed and Fleece. Yes. What's Arklow like? Paint us a little picture. Well, I mean, Arklow has changed over the years. It was very prosperous when I was growing up in a way because it had very high employment. Uh, several things going on there. There was a factory there and there was a, a whole area that made pottery and china and all this sort of stuff. And so everybody had a job and everybody had a great time as well at the weekend. They were known for having a four-day weekend in the 70s. So start on Friday and end on Monday night. Party time! It was, That's growing up, like, the adults around me were... You know, I mean, it's been hard to top. I know Eddie breaking up the hotel room and everything, um, but still, my parents are the most rock and roll people I've, I've known. Are they? For good and for bad. <laughs> so what was your average weekend like then? Loads of parties and they had a kind of international crowd as well because they had loads of people come over from America in the summertime, young people their age, and stay all over the area. You know, it was just the best time ever, you know, the no mobile phones, everybody able to sing 25 songs, you know, everybody able to drink until six in the morning with not needing anything else to do so. And... They seem very glamorous to me, you know, and very... The memories are very hazy and rose-tinted, I guess, of that time and dancing to music with them till, you know, all day on a Sunday. We used to go to these jazz do's and I'd be just getting into music. Music was just everywhere as well, I mean, and song was everywhere. Everyone sang something when they had a few drinks. 
whether he had a compliment or not, whether it was appropriate or not even. And uh, my dad sings in the bath, in the bed, in the walking down the street and in the car. And um, my dad knows so many songs, so many songs. And that's obviously without having to think about being songwriter into music and I fell into it but it was there you know it was in me because of that it was just everywhere was your dad a musician himself no no my uncle was a great 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 musician fantastic but my dad just a, a pub singer you know but a good one very funny one very witty he's very ironic my father and he had uh, has a great outlook, very interesting, uh, individualist in the best way, sort of way of looking at things. And my mother, yeah. great eye, very great beauty. She was a great beauty. And um, uh, not particularly good at towing the line either. She told me a great story about when she was pregnant and they lived down in my father's town when they first got married. And uh, she was having a bit of how's your father with me. Dad, at lunchtime, he'd come home. And she came out of the bedroom and the priest had let himself in to the house and was sitting in the sitting room on the chair. And he was disgusted with her. Why aren't you allowed how's your father in your own house? She was pregnant and they weren't going to mass either. He was he had gone down to tell her to go to mass. Uh, since she'd moved into the town, she hadn't been to mass. And let himself in, right. and, and then of course he must have heard the goings on, and he was even more disgusted. <laughs> That's not fair. And he told her he wouldn't be baptizing that child in the church there. Yeah. So my man was like, "That's all right. I'm getting baptized in Dublin anyway. Go on about your business." But that's the way it was, you know. That's the sort of way what they were up against. But you know, they were trailblazers, I guess, them and their friends, and that kind of, you know, moving on into a kind of modern Ireland, I guess. They were very interesting people, and, and it was a good way to grow up. Can I ask you if religion was a big part of your life when you were growing up? Was it important to you? It was everywhere in the place, you know. It was in... I went to a Catholic school. If I didn't go to Mass, I got in trouble in school. Uh, so you couldn't get away from it. But it didn't preoccupy you, and you didn't live in fear of hellfire if you did something wrong. My mother wasn't going, you're going to go to hell if you wear a, a short skirt or anything. But there was a background of that, that it was very easy to um, transgress, especially if you're a woman. Very easy to not yes. be doing the right thing. And, um, yeah, I got that. And I got that in spades. And I, I, I put people's backs up quite early on in my life, having not been brought up like that and not, not expecting anything other than to be free. I've had an interview. You were starting to make me feel a bit like that interview I did in Ireland when you started that thing, which went, it was a TV interview, and I went out there. And it's an interesting concept. You know, he doesn't know, well, he just didn't know who I was, but he doesn't know who he's getting. So he hasn't done any, he gets a surprise who's coming up. Yeah. And I think he didn't have a clue who I was, really, or somebody might have said down in his ear, it's her, you know, sing it back, you know, Maloco. And he just kept saying to me, I mean, Roisin, you're so confident now, aren't you so confident? You're just so confident, aren't you? And I'd start talking about something else and then he'd go, aren't you so confident, though? I mean, you really are confident. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it took me aback and, and I kind of didn't say, probably for good reason, but I didn't say, 
why shouldn't I be confident, you know? I kind of went, yeah, yeah, I'm confident. My father, my mother made me feel confident and I was delighted and I tried to explain. But as well, like, that should be a baseline, actually, that people are confident, you know? Take confidence away from people, they can't function. <laughs> you have to have some confidence. And then you feel you have to kind of backtrack and say, but, you know, I have got feelings, you know, I am. <laughs> what was the name of the interview? It wasn't Tommy Tiernan, was it? It was Tommy Tiernan, yeah. And aren't you just... Oh, yeah. So confident. (laughs) (laughs) But he's being a wind-up, though, isn't he? I mean, that's his thing, is to be a a, a bit random. I don't think he was winding me up about that. I just think he couldn't think of much else to to, to say, but it was a... It's a good concept, that, though. You jump out there, but it's very hard for the the guest, as well, who feels they have to kind of... Explain themselves. It's a bit more like therapy than a a, a talk show. It's strange. Well, it's a bit like when you're at a party... And maybe you're with family or friends of your in-laws or something like that. And they've got no idea who you are. And someone sort of says, so what do you do? And you have to kind of go, oh, God. Uh, Well, you know, and then you think about like, which bits of what I do am I going to try and explain? And also, which which bits do you want to believe that I do? You know, in this case, in the case of, say, you're on television or whatever. What do you what do you want me to I don't know. It's, it, was, it was weird. It was weird. And I was cringing and I didn't ever want to see it when I actually had done it. Do you ever get that as well? I get that every time. Do you get that every time? Yes. When I first started doing things on TV with Joe Cornish back in the day, and actually before then when I did stuff on my own, so I think about 1994 or 95, and I couldn't believe I was on TV, on tiny shows that no one watched, you know, in the middle of the night. But still, TV oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I always wanted to be on TV. And suddenly I'm there and I would tape everything and I would tell everyone (laughs) and I would watch it and I'd get people over and sit them down. A couple of times, it was really fun. We had a party the first time when our first ever Adam and Joe show episode aired. We went over to my parents' place and um, invited some friends over and had a bit of champagne and my parents were there. It was really fun. That was great. And the show was good and everyone liked it. And everyone was like, yeah, you're on TV. That was a wonderful night. And it was never quite the same thereafter until very quickly it got to the point where you'd be watching things with people and they'd go, yeah, are you pleased with that? (laughs) (laughs) And you'd go, well, do you not like it? "Eh, It's not really my kind of thing. Oh, I get, I've got, I've had that a few times with my family. You know, I had it with my uncle, who was the, the great jazz musician guy, and I played him the first solo yeah. record, and he, it was excruciating. Oh, no. What did he say? You know, <laughs> it's just like, what are you doing? You were doing so well in Maloko. Oh, God, you know, it was like, it's just, because it wasn't, actually, I realised it was a weird record when I played it to him. But you know what? My mammy loved it. She was like, you don't know what you're talking about, Jim Turner. She's got it. She's done it on her own. <laughs> yeah, man. This is Ruby Blue you're talking about, right? It is, yeah, yeah. And how was that different in your mind from what you were doing with Maloko? Well, I mean, it was just... To- I mean, I should say it's fantastic to be a solo artist because every time you work with someone on a big project and you go deep into something and it's a new person, it's a, new- it's a whole new world, you know. If it was a band, you'd be going back in with the same people year in, year out, to try and create something new and fresh and 
And, I, and obviously I was in a band before that and I stopped before it ever got to an issue. Like, But it's nice to, to change and um, he's just got a completely different... I don't know if you know anything about him. He's uh, who are we talking about here? Is this Matthew. Right. Matthew Herbert. Who is your musical collaborator on your solo albums? On that first one, on that very first one, yes. Right, okay. He's sort of like an intellectual. He's kind of got dogma about how he works and creates everything from scratch. So he, you know, he'll make songs out of chickens being killed and uh, he doesn't use any synthesizers he doesn't like synthesized sound why do you need presets presetted sounds you can just throw things in and it was amazing to work with him because he made me bring stuff in from my life we made sound out of objects that mean things to me and he made recordings of me dancing and moving and everything about sound about me interested him and um to make an album that was a Roshi Murphy album, he made it out of sounds that really were everything about me. So, with a microscope on me. But it meant that pretty much any sound I made, he liked it. So, um, it was a great place to start, having not had that kind of experience before and feeling a bit unconfident going into it, feeling like, oh, I might need my boyfriend, you know, that I've been with all these years and make a record the way you've always made it. But no, I... I I jumped in, but he was the perfect person to do it with. Okay, I'm going to return to the Eamon Andrews style now because you mentioned the fact that uh, Roisin, after you moved to England from Ireland, age 12 in the mid-80s, you stayed in... What do you think the accent's like? It's not too... I think it'll probably sound worse on the podcast than it does in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Maybe I'll leave it alone. Keep going, keep oh, going, so keep going, keep going, keep it's going. It's nice to do that. It, it feels good. You grew up in England in the mid-80s. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going now. And then, when your parents divorced, they moved back to Ireland, and you decided to move to Manchester. Oh, no, you stayed in Manchester, mm-hmm. where you had been living with your parents. And so after they moved back, having separated, you hung out in Manchester just at the time when it was becoming Manchester. That's it. Come on! Now she's going to lose her Irish accent. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start talking about them times. I start going like that. But, um, oh, it was wonderful. What were you doing then? Were you studying or were you just... Uh... Studying A-levels, the old blag A-levels, the theatre studies, the communication studies and the art. So I didn't have to worry very much. And um, I had a flash that was like 10 minutes away from my little college. And all my little mates went to my little college and all my little mates, mums and dads and them lived around the area. So I didn't have to move out of the area. And I got an excellent little flat, which had a shared bathroom and a shared hallway between my lovely bedroom and my lovely uh, sitting room, which had a little kitchen <laughs> off the back. And then it went out into a really beautiful uh, garden, actually. And I had an outdoor toilet of my own. And it had an orange 
circular sofa, which made me take the flat initially. In the toilet? Not in the toilet, no, in the living room. And it was ace, it was ace. And people used to come round and listen to Derek and Clive. When you're in Manchester, though, Roisin, were you enjoying... No, I've got to stop this because it's just not cool. Um, You're in Manchester and... Are you going round to the Hacienda? Yeah, I, mean, I went a few times to the Hacienda. I went a lot of times and got turned down because I was too young. I'd get past maybe a couple of the fellas on the door, but then there was this woman on the door who was, like, evil, and she spotted all the young ones coming in. She'd pull you into a separate room and question you about three questions. No, you're out. So that happened a few times. But I did get in there a good few times and, and, and wasn't mad for the Hacienda, you know. Why not? Too big. Don't like... Clubs where there's a lot of transient movement going on, you know. I don't mm-hmm. like getting caught in a flow of people going from one room to another or one space to another, one level, one mezzanine, one cool thing that was designed by an architect to another. I like a club club. So for me, I used to like the kind of clubs that were either... There had been like real Sharon Tracy clubs and then they would be taken over. So, you know, you'd have like a big discotheque and you walk in, beautiful wooden floor and proper discotheque lighting that costs a fortune to put in and then soft furnishings and no windows and nowhere else to go but just to where there's this amazing sound system and amazing music. So there's a few clubs like that in Manchester. I mean, I have had good nights out in warehouses. I don't like dancing on concrete and that either. I like like I like a ballroom. Nice sprung floor or some underlit, staying alive type flooring yeah a bit of <laughs> bit of like studio line you know type disco shenanigans and maybe the club's called something like monroe's and there's some like neon pictures yes. of marilyn monroe in there sure those types of places that's the way i used to roll mainly sinatra's with a c sinatra's yeah and what were you listening to around that time then? What were your favorite bands? Before I really got into clubbing, I was into more alternative rock. So I was into Sonic Youth and Butthole Surfers and Big Black and My Bloody Valentine and... Pixies? Pixies loved the Pixies, throwing muses and things like that. And then leading out of that, you had your kind of... Um, when uh, they had started having those crossover hits like uh, Primal Scream and that. Mm-hmm. Everything was melding at that point and um, I started going clubbing. And I got really into sort of futuristic music and I got a rad buzzer of thinking that I was on the vanguard of music culture and pursued it and found a lot of it in Sheffield, actually. Kind of much more futuristic vision there, coming out of the studios there. Not that I was in any many studios. I did go in a strawberry studios when I lived in Stockport, which was 10cc's studio they had built. Right, OK. It was beautiful. It was all wooden and had a big central kind of um, common room with the studios off yeah. sort of circle. And um, and I met Martin Hannett. No way. One day I was in there, yeah, and he was lovely but a bit sweaty. And, <laughs> and we watched, we all watched... Uh, VHS tapes of Joy Division Whoa. in the common room. So when would uh, this have been? I would have been 16, 17, so 1990, 1989, 1990, something like that. Right. Yeah. So it was when you moved to Sheffield, you just have to imagine the Eamon Holmes. Eamon, you just have to imagine the Eamon Andrews accent now. It was Eamon Holmes. Can you do you Eamon Holmes? Can you do Eamon Holmes, though? Can you go northern? 
Irish. No way. How does that sound? I can't do a Northern Irish accent. I think maybe it's because it's sort of like the nationalist background is programmed my brain to not be able to hear the... Because I can do any other accent. I just can't do a Northern Irish. 68 Bally Murphy. <laughs> like, all I can say is um, situation, um, <laughs> which I got off, uh, you know that film with Brad Pitt in? And he's, he's IRA <laughs> yeah. man. And he keeps seeing situation. And I uh, kept, and then so it became a Brad Pittiation, a Brad Pittiation. <laughs> yeah. There's some very, very bad Irish accents in one of those Harrison Ford uh, Patriot Games films. In fact, maybe it's even Patriot Games. And they have Sean Bean, and his brother is a terrorist, and he gets killed, and he's really upset about it and And sean bean doing an irish accent i think so i think i'm getting that right and it is absolute dog shit well i'm sure Um, apparently there's one that's come out now that's actually you know they're actually saying it's racistly bad like that it's (laughs) like they've made some hollywood movie did you read about it recently yeah that's the that's the it's up for a load of awards i think it's all kind of chocolate boxy cliche of quaint Irish folk and lovely countryside. And who's in it? Like somebody like Angelina Jolie or someone is like some Irish Emily mammy. Blunt, in isn't it? it? Emily Blunt. <laughs> and um, Christopher Walken is in it. Oh, well, as well. Can't be bad then. I'd love to hear his Irish accent. And he's doing an Irish accent as well. And apparently it's called Wild Mountain Time is the name. I just looked at it. Wild Mountain Time. And it's, um, yes, ridiculed for Christopher Walken's extremely odd irish accent yeah <laughs> what's this it says wild mountain time trailer mocked for very upsetting irish accents this is worse than the famine it says in quotes <laughs> although it doesn't say see you, do, you don't you don't, don't get away famine. with things the way you used to <laughs> not anymore <laughs> that's what someone's been saying they switched off the this podcast in disgust after i did my third Eamon andrews impression saying this is worse than the famine. <laughs> that was good, though. That one was. That's like a Dublin accent <laughs> you just done. That was the best you've done, strangely. Okay, let's see to what extent you're sensitive to this kind of thing. Because when we started exchanging emails in the run-up to this conversation, I was very careful to put all the correct accents, acute accents, on the O and the second I of your name, Roisin. I really I thought, like that. I do like to see that. Because uh, I was thinking to myself, like, is she going to appreciate this or am I just wasting my time? Because it takes twice as long to type it out. It took me ages to figure really out how you actually put the accent on Actually, I really there. do appreciate it. And I, I was reading a friend of mine had posted on Facebook the other day. You know that Irish names are hard to pronounce? They are, yes. And um, he's Irish guy. Like Sir Sharonan. He has kind of... Irish family that, you know, weren't born in Ireland that live in the UK. And he was visiting them, he was visiting his cousin. And they'd had a child, this couple, and they'd call the child Oisin. Mm-hmm. But they were calling the child Oisin, right? So your man, the Irish fella, says to him, <laughs> this is what the parents were calling the child Oisin. And your man says, what did you say the name was? And they said, oh, said spell it. And he went, Oh, you know, you say that in Ireland, with the Irish, you say that, Oisin, it's not Oisin. They never spoke to him again. They never spoke to him again. <laughs> the mother rang up. <laughs> Who's Irish? The mother of the cousin. And you should be discussing with yourself. You should be shit. That child's name is that. 
that is how you pronounce it. Even the Irish mammy was saying it to me. He was like totally <laughs> like in the twilight zone here. Like, you know, um, none of them are talking to him now. <laughs> but the thing is, oh, wow. see, what a horrible name. It's just a horrible name to put on a child. But maybe you think it's horrible that because you know the correct pronunciation. Oisin. Oisin. Oisin, darling. <laughs> if you say it like that. But, but that's how they do say it, English world. people, isn't it? It needs to be. Oisin, you little. Come on. <laughs> but it's just what you're used to, though, isn't it? That's the thing. I always find it strange when people. No, do no, get it's not just what you're used you miss- to. It's not pronounced. Oisin. My name is not. Royson. And when I called Cloda, Cloda, her grandfather, who's um, English, came over, drove to Ireland in the dead of snow, wouldn't dream of getting on the aeroplane, gave out about it the whole way over, because that's where he was. Yeah. And then he arrived and he's still given out, and a beautiful child in my arms, his first grandchild. Finally, because he, he, he's a stiff English guy, you know, <laughs> finally he's able to put the child in his, in his lap, you know, and start sort of tentatively rocking it, not really wanting the responsibility, to be honest. And then he goes, do you mind if I just call her Chloe? Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd been given out, you know, about this name, like, what the hell kind of name is that? Clota. Do you mind if I just call her Chloe? I said, well, do you mind if I just call you Benjamin, Tony? You know, I mean, no, we can't call her Chloe. <laughs> call her Cloda. Her name's Cloda. <laughs> Shake of it. How do you spell Cloda? C-L-O-D-A-G-H. Cloda. And then Cloda. my son is called Tig, which is spelled... Q-W-T-F-P. <laughs> something like that. It looks like something you see in the Argos catalogue. You know, you write down the code. T-A-D-H-G. Yeah. But um, it sounds good with the Italian second name, Tig Propetzi. Oh, yeah, man. Beautiful. No, it's it's tough the first time. It's like, I'm sure, Saoirse, is that, I mean, are we happy with Saoirse as no. pronunciation for? No. How are you pronouncing that? I'm talking about the actor. Saoirse uh, is one uh, name. Saoirse is another name. The one you're doing is in between the two of them names, isn't it? Okay. All right, then. So how should that... Uh, this is the actor whose surname is Ronan and... She's called um, Saoirse. How, Saoirse. Yes, Saoirse. My niece uh, is called okay. Saoirse. And then I have another niece called Leisha. When I was trying to think of a name for Tig, I couldn't think of a name for a long time. He didn't come to... You know, we were talking about it a long time. It was really close to the birth. And about a week before the birth, I went for dinner with my boyfriend and my other friend. And... Um, we all started to get a bit stressed talking about what was going to be his name and everything. And um, and then my mate, who's gay and a bit flamboyant, went, Darling, is it Cloda? What kind of a name is Cloda? Cloda! So rough! So I ran out of there, like, in a hormonal, like, drama. Like, and I, I was sobbing, I was sobbing, I was crying on the street. Like, you know when you're, like, oh, drinking tears, drinking tears, but it was, uh, it was hormones, you know? But also this pressure, this yeah. pressure. Anyway, so I rang up Parrot, who's the man who actually I produced the last record with me, Roisin Machine, who I've known since I was really young in Sheffield. He's like that. And um, so I don't know what I'm going to do, Parrot. Oh, Claude is a bloody good name. I like Claude, he said. Sounds proper. It sounds like some bog earth, doesn't it? Like something you've dug up out of the bog. Claude. Proper. <laughs> it's very tricky. 
But you're happy with your name? No, no. I mean, I like my name, but it hasn't been that helpful to be called Roshi. Right, because you spend all your time correcting people and going around the States saying, no, that's not how you pronounce it. Well, I can't get into the States because of my name, you know. Now that's it, I'm not having anything to do with something I can't pronounce. No, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know what people think. I mean, I think if people are afraid to pronounce something, then they won't. And so your name just doesn't get, as a sort of as a trying to be a pop star or whatever, your name just doesn't get banded around as easily. Yeah, I think that's the other thing about people taking offence too easily is that it then has the effect of sort of silencing people who are nervous and don't want to give offence. And they just think, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to avoid this altogether then. Well, that's it. I mean, the English people are really that, aren't they? With, with anything other than English, they're afraid to... And English speaking, I should say, is what Irish people do. We're not brought up with other languages floating around, you know, that we had to learn or whatever. Yeah. I'm afraid to say, let's say, for example, my brain shuts me down for being pretentious, in a sense, you know. So Mm -hmm. I start to say, Ibiza. Yeah. To you. Because that's what you call it. That's what it's called, right? You know, but I start to say it and it doesn't come out. And then I go, Ibiza. So I go halfway between the two, a bit like you did with Searsha and Sorsha. You know, yes. I, got, I get like unsure of myself type thing and I go between the two. But I also feel pretentious I, saying things right. I heard you talking about Ibiza and I thought, well, do you say, do you say, oh, I'm going to have a pepperoni pizza? Well, who says pizza? Nobody says pizza anyway. No, I know, I know. But it's uh, in English pronunciation generally, you only go hard on that Z sound if it's a double Z. You know, it's like yes, yeah. In Italian, Z's almost like T. It's almost got a T in it. Pizza. Right, pizza. Anyway, of course, you're absolutely right, and it should be that way. But then you get some people who do really relish doing the correct pronunciation and they rub it in your face. You they know. do, those horrors, and... those horrible people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. Like my in-laws, I've talked about this before, but my, my in-laws, they say, yes, we're going to have a pepperoni pizza and we're going to have a, a glass of rosé. Um, <laughs> yeah, wine. yeah, that sort, of, that sort of shizzle. It's all a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you have to call time out and just say, come on, mate, just lean into the lean into the British pronunciation. Why not? Well, that's certainly what I do. Rosé. Just get me to rosé. Keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I'm checking my account at the memory bank. The memory bank, the memory bank. We're thanking you for banking all your memories. I'd like to take out a happy memory thanks. The memory bank. The memory bank. Oh, sorry, but you're very overdrawn. I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet. The memory bank. The memory bank. I'm very sorry, but we're closing your account. My what? Where am I? The memory bank. The memory bank. We're the nice bank. Would you like to bank with us? All right. Eamon Andrews time. Come on. A story I've heard you telling before about the beginnings of Maloko is that you were... at a party in Sheffield, and that is where you met your bandmate, Mark Bryden. And was it your very opening line to Mark to say, do you like my tight sweater, or was that later on in the conversation? It was the opening line. 
Right. It was something like, like he wasn't say... the only one that I tried it on that night, to be honest. Really? <laughs> he was the most receptive. <laughs> you like my tight sweater. What do you think of my tight sweater? It was a bit like that. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. It kind of went into a loop in my brain as well. It was very fortunate, wasn't it? What, what? I did see him from across <laughs> the room and I did think, Jesus Christ, he's handsome. Like the most handsome yeah. guy in Sheffield. When I like kind of rugged guys, you know, like man, 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 man. And he was that. And, and he was quiet and he was all those things. I didn't know if I would be in luck at all with him, but um, he, was, he was in a desperate, he like he was in a desperate place, as it turned out. <laughs> so, you know, but he was ready for me, like a rock steady yeah. Freddy. And he took me to his big studio to show me his big equipment that very night. Mm-hmm. Fawn Studios. Good one. Fawn Studios, which Were the you control a... desk was based on the Starship Enterprise. Was it really? It really was, yes. That would be, if I had unlimited funds, I would create a studio that was based on the bridge of the Enterprise from Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh. The Jean-Luc Picard version. Is that even better? Even better. It's the most beautiful design. I love the colour scheme. It's very relaxing. It's ergonomically... You've really thought about this, haven't you? I used to really love that show. And when when we got married, me and my wife went to Las Vegas and we checked into our hotel in Las Vegas the night before 9-11. And we got trapped. So we woke up and everything was weird. We got trapped for a week in Las Vegas because all the flights were grounded and you couldn't get out and everyone hired all the cars and... Jesus, there must have been some goings on then. Well, between me and my wife. No, but I mean, what the (laughs) hell were they Americans doing in that, in Las Vegas, on massive big screens? Were you watching it on massive big screens or something? Well, we watched the second plane fly into the second tower on the big TV in our room as we were waking up after our first night in Las Vegas, quite hungover. We'd fallen asleep watching um, Tomb Raider with uh, Angelina Jolie. And the man from the British Empire, Chris Barry. And we woke up and we were all foggy. And we turned on the TV and it was just a static shot of the first tower smoking. And I was like, what is this? Is this like a... I couldn't figure out what was going on. Is it like a simulation about what would happen if there was a disaster of this kind? And then the second plane hit. And then, I, you know, we started to figure out what was happening. And it was... Very shocking, obviously. But then a few days pass. We're still in Las Vegas. We're like, well, what are we going to do? And the whole place emptied out. It became a ghost town. And there was a very strange atmosphere. The people that were left were trying to just carry on, even though the news was on every screen wherever you went. And there was an ever-present sense of unease and fear you were still trying to distract yourself in this ridiculous town. So we were doing a lot of gambling and drinking loads of sugary cocktails and playing the slots. And then I discovered there was a Star Trek museum. And so we went there and they had a full life-size reconstruction of the bridge from the Starship Enterprise from the next generation. And it was the happiest I was all week. Like the rest of the week, I was just thinking, oh God, what's happened to the world? This is bad. And then I got to the bridge of the Enterprise and I thought, yes, this is good. This is, I'm in my happy place. Because it felt as if that was the best of America somehow. America's ability to construct fantastic, hopeful narratives. They're so good at that when they do it well. 
And yet here we were in the midst of this event that was going to lead to the opposite of that in so many ways. That's a very deep thing that I just said. Maybe we should think about it for a while. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> she was thinking about it. I was in Greece. I was in Lesbos with me mammy. And uh, right. I'd stayed in Lesbos a couple of weeks with me ma. We'd gone around a bit and everywhere we went, my mother was, I'm the mother, she's the daughter. The mother and daughter, you know, because she didn't want anyone to think we were lesbians. <laughs> you go to the corner okay. shop and she'd be like, mother and daughter, you know yourself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But other than that, we had the most wonderful holiday, like so relaxing. I love going on holiday with me, ma. It's just relaxing, you know. It's just yeah. doing stuff that mostly fellas just don't do with you, you know, just lying on the beach, maybe even having your lunch on the beach and then... You know, just really relaxing, beautiful time. And that kicked off. We were on the way back off the beach and we saw through a balcony into somebody's apartment. You could see it on the television and everybody sitting around watching it. And we thought they were just watching some movie. And then my mother, who's mm-hmm. a very intelligent woman, said, no, hold on. Even at the small, there's some, that's, that's really happening. So then we went to this pub that had the big, the reason why I said the big screens, because that's how we saw it, the big screens for the football, for the, you know, the mm. English pub we went. It's the most bizarre kind of cinema experience, you know, to all people from all over the world to be sat there with their mouths open with this thing happening. I went home after we, the first one, and I went to sleep. I was so shocked by it. I, I As I told you, I'm good at going to sleep when I need to. I was worried about people I knew in New York and so on. Then my mother came back. She was like a lunatic. The second one's gone. And I was, oh, Jesus, it was like... And then oh, um, and then the, the Greeks were really weird about it. I found ones that we'd run into. In what Obviously way? not all of them, but, you know, the ones we run into a couple that were like, Americans deserve it. And all right, this. OK. So then you felt a bit alienated as well. Then you felt like, oh... Is that what they think about us? Is that what they think about all of us hmm. in this holiday place? You know, and the sort of things like that show the show the cracks in things, don't they? Yes, it strips everything away. Mm-hmm. Right. You got a ciggy and a drink. I have. You got a lager. Got a lager, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. What time is it out there? The time now is 18.54. That's what my dad always said. You say to me, dad, what time is it, dad? And you say, now? Every time. Every single time you ask him for the time. Is that where the song came from? <laughs> could be, could be. What time is it, Dad? Now? This present moment? Yes, this time, now. <laughs> good man for repeat jokes, you know. Certain people are really good at doing the same joke over and over again. Or having a re- repertoire. It's always funny, it's always funny. And it's, in fact, because oh. if they do it again... That's what makes it even funnier. It goes against the laws of physics. <laughs> I had a similar joke, but no one ever used to laugh at my joke. I did a similar thing, which was people would say, what's the time? I'd say, oh, it's an abstract concept. And um, No, that's not as funny or clever even. No, as... it's not, is it? <laughs> my dad's was more pointed and straight to the philosophical question and without any, pre- without any pretension. Fucking hell. We've identified the exact thing that makes my humour a little bit shit. Sometimes, I'm saying. It makes my tunes a bit shit, that, as well, though, so it being a bit pretentious. So, you know, as long as we're aware of it. Why is that? I suppose, you know, that when you're making something, you do have to keep that 
I sort of pretend she's side in check and make sure it's just not running out of hand, mm-hmm. you know. I was watching the Clive Davis documentary last night. Did you watch that? It's on Netflix. Yeah, very good. Very sad. All the Whitney Houston stuff is very sad. Yeah. But the thing about him being able to put the right song with the right artist and him just... Yes. And every artist had the same story. Every artist went in and went... I argued with him. I said I didn't want to do that song. What did you want me to do that stupid song for? That didn't suit my repertoire at all, blah, blah, blah. And look where we are today. And it would always be, you know, it created a monster hit for them, you know, that they could have a career off the back of for the rest of their lives type thing. There's a real genius to that, that ability to pair an artist with a song and know that it's going to work that combination have you seen the documentary tina about um tina turner no i haven't that's a good one it's a little bit long but it's very interesting and some people have criticized it for focusing too heavily on her abusive relationship with ike turner and she is clearly fed up with talking about the subject herself understandably she doesn't want to relive that trauma over and over again anyway some amazing footage in it and some amazing stuff. And the, the moment when Tina Turner's career is revitalized by the Private Dancer album is great and uplifting. And the thing that cracks it, of course, is the, the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Yeah. Originally, What's Love Got to Do With It had been recorded by Bucks Fizz. No, and I didn't know that. Yeah. They did the first version of it. They did an incredibly anemic, no disrespect to the Mighty Bucks Fizz, but it was a rare off moment for them. And they did quite an anemic version of it. (laughs) And then the song was played to Tina Turner. And they said, well, this will be good. Her producer, forget his name, or the engineer, or someone involved with the album said, check this out. I think it would be good for you. And she listened to it and said, no way, you're insane. That is terrible. I'm not doing that. This is what always happens, yeah. Yeah. And then the producer got her to, he said, no, 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 look, look, look. And he started putting his rhythm track together and started putting a bit of a groove on it. And he encouraged her to actually groove around in the studio. He sort of said, look, 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 it's got a, you you sort of groove around like this. So it's this uh, middle-aged white guy kind of grooving around next to Tina Turner. And she sort of starts joining in. And there's a little bit of footage of this from the sessions and sure enough you know she says all right i'll give it a go but it's not going on the album cut to the video for it and immediately you have a rush of memories coming back for that year and hearing that song coming out of every radio and everything suddenly feeling all 80s and simple and big widescreen and and she won every award and it was the biggest song of the year Mm mm-hmm it's, it's a fantastic moment. He's had a few of them, hasn't he, Clive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen the documentary about Tina, but I do love the film, What's Love Got to Do With It? I think there's some great performances in it. It's a good film. It's a good biopic. I've never seen it, actually. And at the end, this was what stayed with me, especially in later years of my career. I keep expecting it to happen to me, but in the end, she's on some kind of cruise ship or something singing, and the Svengali from the record company is in the shadows, like, watching her and saying... I can bring you back to life. I can make this happen for you. (laughs) I keep thinking that's going to happen to me. But you don't need to be revitalised. You're doing fine, aren't you? Well, I mean, I could do with it. What's love got to do with it? Somebody coming along and going, right then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good point, I suppose. I mean, you've had your 
fair share, some would say more than your fair share. Most artists would be delighted to have the kind of hits that you've had and the kind of career that you've had so far. But you're the kind of artist that could quite easily be married to a song and it would totally capture people's imaginations the way that some of your songs already have, you know. But yeah, it could be that kind of song that is absolutely everywhere. Yeah. We need one of them. But you write your own stuff, though, as well, right? I do, yeah. Well, I write 50%, more or less, of everything that I put out. And the other 50% is whoever I'm collaborating with or whatever group of people I'm collaborating with. Because I write the melodies and the lyrics, which is ostensibly, you know, known in the... There's a standard that that's a 50% dealio. Which is grand for me, and I, I love the collaboration thing. I don't think I'll ever try making music. I, I just have too much respect and awe for, uh, you know, the guys that have put their lives into it and know everything about it. And Speaking of your What's Love Got To Do With It, I've been working on a track that I was thinking could be a remote collab. And lyrically, I was thinking that we could talk about things that made us feel positive. Because, you know, people maintaining their mental health is the big thing at the moment. We're in lockdown three and people are struggling. Uh, people aren't sleeping well. People are just feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders in all sorts of ways, COVID related and otherwise. So I was thinking that we could share with the listeners some of the things that cheer us up, some of our go-to mood lifters. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we'd take turns line by line to share them. Things like, you know, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I go for a walk. Things like that. I like to be pissed on or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is going to be a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> Hello, Roisin. How are you, Adam? How are you doing? Pretty good at the moment, thanks. I'm going to sing this next bit. How would you feel about exchanging tips? Give over. No tips. Tips for staying positive. You know, things you do to cheer yourself up when you're feeling blue. You go first. I just remind myself of those massive giant rabbits you can get. They're like four foot with them huge paws and that. They're ace. I wish I had one of them. I like to watch the scene from Bridesmaids where Kristen Wiig is on the plane. And she is drunk. Or you could try getting drunk yourself. That can be quite a nice pastime and it's harmless. I don't think that's true. More or less. Well, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I go for a walk. They work the walks. I like an out walk as well. Always good. So what's your head out? Defo. I just said defo. I like videos of dogs and cats and babies being sweet But only if I'm really out of options It can be quite nice to touch disgusting things Whilst wearing rubber gloves Things that make me cheerful continued A nice cup of tea Raw rolling papers Helping out a stranger Kissing in the garden Drawing a picture, even if it's shit. Dance, yep. dance, what? dance, uh, dance, ooh. dancing around the park. Okay. It's great when my wife or my children laugh at my jokes. Oh, Dad, you're very underrated, they say. Look at you. When I sing at home, all hell breaks loose. 
keep telling them people pay me to do this. I love staring into the eyes of my dog friend Rosie. Might I say, watching handsome Italian guys making focaccia in my kitchen? Sure, everyone likes that. Simply lovely. And then, of course, what always works for me is listening to some music I like. Put your hands together for the vocal stylings of Roy C. Murphy. Red hot time, baby! Red hot! Is that all right? Black box delicious. A few good tips there, weren't there? Some more than others, yeah. Oh, I do also really like to bury my face deep yeah. in warm, Watch out. clean washing off of the radiator. What do you think of that? Relieved. All warm on my face. Sure. The smell of the, of the detergent. Yes. How about cleaning out a cupboard? Nobody wants to be cleaning out cupboards, but uh, once it's done, it's very uh, rewarding. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. Rose, Rosie, come here. Come and say hello. It's good to have you back, Rose. We were worried about you. I love you. Hmm. All right, dog eyes. Come on. So there you go. That was Roisin Murphy talking to me there. Very grateful to Roisin for her time. That was good fun. I enjoyed chatting with her. I'm also extremely grateful, of course, for her vocal contributions to that song. In the description of today's podcast and on the corresponding page on my blog, if you haven't visited my blog recently, oh, it's been revamped. And you can sign up for a newsletter that I occasionally send out when I've got something to talk about. And... It's just a wonderland of great, great times. It's replaced the app, the Adam Buxton app. Anyway, uh, the address is in the description of the podcast, as well as a load of links to some Roisin-related stuff. What have we got for you? Bop, 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 do, do, do. 
Oh yeah, a couple of those live performances. Acoustic performance live at home for Festival Marvin 9.5 from 2020 uh, of Murphy's Law and The Time Is Now. Brilliant performances from Roisin in her front room with her acoustic guitar accompanist with her changing costume and giving it her all. Videos for Maloko from back in the day. One by my friend Garth Jennings of production company Hammer and Tongs. One of the earlier videos they made, I think, just as they were becoming like the uh, kings of music video making in that golden age of uh, pop promos towards the end of the 90s. That's the video for The Flip Side by Maloko, one of their earlier hits. Uh, There's Roisin singing Murphy's Law on the Graham Norton show last year, 2020. A link to that Clive Davis documentary, which is very good. He's a really inspiring figure, a rare figure in the music industry that everyone seems to think is a decent guy. It'll probably turn out that he murdered 400 people in secret at some point. I hope not. I don't think he did. Come on, Clive, don't murder anyone. Should we go through this way? Rosie. We're going through a different way, listeners. We usually go follow the same path. But we're mixing it up today, going through some woods. Oh, it's such a nice evening. And I've also put a link to that Bucks Fizz recording of What's Love Got to Do With It, as well as Tina Turner's version from a couple of years later in 1984... And it's one of those songs, as I was saying in my conversation with Roisin, as soon as you hear it, it just, it's so beautifully produced. It sounds like Africa by Toto in that way, that certain kind of very widescreen 80s production, which I didn't like at the time, but now that I'm older, it's nice. That documentary that I mentioned, though, Tina, is not actually released yet. I saw a preview copy of it. I think it's going to be available to view online towards the end of March of this year, 2021. I've put a link in the description to a overview of it on the HBO website. There is also a link in the description to Podmonkey. That is the company that has been formed by Matt Lamont, who regularly edits the conversations on this podcast, along with his associate Scott Edwards, And both Matt and Scott worked on today's episode to help fix a few sound issues that there were. Some of you may have spotted them Um, because I forgot to ask Roisin to turn her speakers down in the remote link up. I'm sure there are a few of you out there, music producers and podcast makers, who know how enjoyable it is when it comes to editing a conversation if uh, one half of the conversation is bleeding across onto the other half it's one of the worst things in the world what have you found? CD who is it? we found a Shania Twain CD (laughs) it's come on over do you know Shania Twain? I've heard of her yeah She's incredible, and you should take that home and treasure it. I'm going to listen to it the second I get back. 
Oh, it's her big album from 1997. It's got Man, I Feel Like a Woman on it. Yeah, look. You know that one? Yeah. I wonder if he threw it out. It might be one of the... Um, she's big with rabbits. Big I with rabbits. So it might be one of those. Anyway, I was saying thanks to Matt and Scott for all their expertise in um, fixing up the audio on the podcast. Much appreciated, both of you. And thanks, as ever, to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his invaluable production support. Oh, yes, I was going to say, Matt and Scott's company, PodMonkey, is the place to visit if you need help putting together your podcast. Link in the description. That's it for this week. Um, Yeah, I think I'm going to leave it there. (laughs) And... uh, rejoin my daughter and Rosie on this um, lovely evening. Hope things are okay with you, wherever you're listening. And I will be back with the podcast. My plan is to delve into the archives a little bit for the next couple of episodes. One episode that I recorded last year Um, that actually had some similar audio problems, so it took me a little while to fix that. And another one that I recorded live with an always popular guest. So I'm hoping to put those out uh, sometime in the next week or two. And then I've got a few more episodes coming away. This is boring, though. So I'm going to stop telling that story and instead offer you a hug. Would you like a hug? All right. There you go. Until next time, take extremely good care and for what it's worth, uh, just bear in mind, I love you. Bye!